Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. I'm your guest host, Milena. And I'm your co-host, Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys part two of the Ashland tragedy. So grab yourself a giant cup of coffee and let's dive on in. If you guys did not check out part one of our episodes, part one is going to be telling you the actual crime and the investigation into finding out who actually committed the crime. And then it's going to be kind of the start of the trials. I do want to make a quick correction. I did on the last one say that George Kraft was sentenced to hang on the same day as William Neal on February 14th, 1882. However, I was supposed to say Ellis Kraft. If you've been listening, there is a George Ellis and an Ellis Kraft, and I combined their names on that last one. So I do just want to clarify, it is William Neely and Ellis Kraft that are sentenced to hang on February 14th, 1882, at the time of where we left off in our last story. In February of 1882, George Ellis was still in prison. He had not yet gone to trial for the murder of the three children, but he gave an interview with a Cincinnati newspaper, and supposedly he told them a completely different story, which is not abnormal. As we know, he's already changed the story like four or five different times, but he said that he hired two black men to help him hold down the girls while he raped them, and then the two hired men are the ones that actually killed the teenagers. And then he said that when he was leaving the scene of the crime, he saw his friends Ellis Craft and William Neal walking and decided, oh, I'll just blame them if I get caught. Once again, I don't know if this is a situation where his friends are somehow still kind of coercing him into telling people that they're innocent because they have been sentenced to hang and they're a little scared of where it's going, or if he's all of a sudden feeling guilty because he found out that his friends are going to be put to death. I'm not sure what was going through his head, but he was once again changing his story to make his friends innocent, this time including himself in the actual crime. It is definitely weird just how different all the stories are. And I know that's common, but still to me, it just kind of amazes me that he has all of these different stories. Yeah, I think he's just kind of bored at this point and trying to figure out any way that he can say things to make it look like his friends are innocent. A few days later, when the interview was actually released in the newspapers, he claimed that he never said this story and that the newspaper just made it up. George went to trial on June 2nd, 1882, and he was found guilty for his part in the murders, and he was sentenced to life in prison. He had not been sentenced to death because he had cooperated, and he was the one that was testifying against William Neal and Ellis Craft, and he was the one that had come forward and admitted to the crime. And we see that a lot, where when you're the one that comes forward and confesses to everything that's going on, then a lot of times you do get a little lesser sentence. And you'd think that now, after all the trials are done, that probably not a whole lot's going to happen. But this is just the beginning of a whole nother story that involves a whole lot of crime. So that night, around midnight, so the night that he was sentenced to life in prison, a lot of people in the town did not like that. They thought that he needed to be put to death as well. And so they were not going to go silently, pretty much. They're going to make it known what they actually wanted and what they felt like the proper sort of justice was for him. So about 20 men, 
all wearing black hoods that night, went to the engine house of the railroad in Ashland and ordered the watchman to hook up a couple of flat cars to the engine house. And then they got on the train and they forced the drivers to take them to Callitzburg, where the jail was that George Ellis was staying in. And they tried to get in, but nobody would let them in. And I think that's fair because at this time, it's about three o'clock in the morning. And these people are all wearing black hoods and obviously angry. And the jail officers are just like, we're not letting you in. But because there were so many of them, they stormed the building and they found George Ellis's cell. And they brought him out of the jail and took him back to Ashland on the train. And when they got back to Ashland, they decided that they were going to kill him. Have you ever heard the saying, two wrongs don't make a right? Because I feel like in this instance, they don't know that you can't solve the fact that three people were murdered by murdering the person who may or may not have done it. Because like you have said, the story has changed multiple times. So no one's really sure of exactly what happened. And murdering him is just going to make it harder to find the true story. Well, at this point, they are already sentenced, so the likelihood of that changing is kind of slim, even if he continues to change his story. He has been found guilty. He could do an appeal, but other than the appeal, he'd probably most likely still be sentenced because he did give the confession. So basically, the whole town gathers, and they bring George Ellis up in front of everybody, and they ask him if he and his friends, Ellis Craft and William Neal, are the ones that murdered the three teens, and he says yes. And then he asks that if they kill him, please don't mutilate my body, and that was his only request. Seems like a fair request. They did ask him if he wanted to pray beforehand. This is a common practice that happened prior to sentenced deaths. And he declined and said that he was ready to die. And so the town got together and hung him from a sycamore tree that was about 100 yards from the Gibbons home that had been burned down. His body hung there until the next afternoon when the coroner cut it down. And his death was ruled murder by person or persons unknown. Really weird shocker. I'm shocked that by murdering someone, you know, you actually get in trouble for it. No, nobody got in trouble. It was ruled a murder, but by persons unknown. They kind of swept it on the rug. The whole town was like, we're all in it together, so nobody can really get in trouble. I did not know that's a thing. That's crazy. I know you guys can't see me right now, but my jaw is to the floor. I don't know that it's something you could necessarily get away with today. But in the 1800s, it was a little different. There wasn't quite as much of a criminal justice system as there is now. Not that ours is perfect currently, but I think you could definitely get away with more things like this and everybody just kind of turned a blind eye. It's very similar to today when people go to prison for harming a child. A lot of times, there are times that a lot of the inmates will gang up to murder the person that was the one that harmed a child because in prisons, a lot of people see harming a child as one of the worst crimes possible. So a lot of times people turn a blind eye to that as well. If somebody who harmed an innocent child is murdered or attacked, a lot of times it just kind of gets swept under the rug. Which technically he did harm three children. Yes. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, 
help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. So remember how we talked about just a few seconds ago, the fact that unless George appealed his conviction, he was pretty much just sentenced to life in prison. Well, both Ellis and William decided that they're going to try to appeal their convictions. And they were actually granted a new trial. While they were waiting for their new trials, they were meeting with national newspapers and giving lots of interviews of their story. And they were constantly just sticking to the story that George Ellis was crazy. He did it on their own and they were innocent. In June of 1882, the reward that I had talked about that was about $1,000 or a little over $25,000 in today's time was still out there because nobody had ever brought in any information. It was one of the perpetrators themselves had come forward and claimed to have done it. So people were still trying to kind of cash in on that. They really wanted that money. It was a lot of money. And there was a detective from out of town who showed up one day with two black men And he said, these are the killers. They're the ones that did it. Give me my money, basically. And there was a trial for them. They had a full-on trial, but they were found innocent. And when they left the courthouse, there were some friends of the two guys that he brought to town. And they were just waiting outside the courthouse. And when the detective came out, his friends beat him up, shot him in the leg, and then police showed up and broke up the dispute. That is crazy. This is the same thing with the two wrongs don't make a right. People need to understand this. Sweetie, we're not done. Oh, no. So in the fall of 1882, both William Neal and Ellis Craft were moved again from Lexington to Catlettsburg to start the trial. And the governor at the time, G.W. Blackburn, told the whole county that he would kill them all if they interrupted this trial because there was constantly violence going on and he said he did not tolerate violence at all and he wanted to make sure that the law was upheld. So he didn't tolerate violence and he wanted the law to be upheld, yet his threat was to murder people, which I mean, I do believe that is violence and illegal. I would agree to both of those. I think he was just kind of over it at this point because there had been so many different things going on with this one trial and they were still kind of nowhere at this point. I mean, one person had been sentenced to life in prison and then murdered. And then these guys had been sentenced to death and then they appealed their trial. So now they're awaiting a new trial. So nothing was really happening the way that it was supposed to be happening. And I think he was just fed up. I still don't think that's that's a good reason to have murder as a threat. I don't think he ever went through with it. I think it was just so that people knew that he was being serious. So Ellis Craft and William Neal, they had their attorneys request a new location for the trial and it was granted. And so now the trials were pushed back again and they were supposed to start in February of 1883. So this is a year and like two months after the crime itself had actually taken place. So now comes the fun part where you have to transport the prisoners from their jail to the courthouse for the trial. And I don't know if you guys just assume that this is going to go right because I can promise you it's not. People were kind of honestly really upset that it had been taking so long because like I said, the children had been murdered a year and like two to three months ago. And these people were still just like in jail. They hadn't been put to death yet. And while we're used to people nowadays being on death row for multiple years they were used to people being put to death and justice being brought to families like immediately so everybody was still really pissed that these people were just in jail and still alive and so they were like 
you know what? We're going to handle this ourselves. Major Allen was the commander of a militia group at the time, and their job was to guard these prisoners to get from Lexington to Grayson in Carter County for the trial. So originally they were going to transport them by train, but Major Allen was worried about it because he'd heard about the mobs that were in Ashland that were basically waiting for these guys so they could kill them. So he's like, we'll go a different route. So he requested a steamer called the Granite State to go to Maysville in Carter County. So they loaded it up with the prisoners, and as they were finishing loading with the guards, a train from Ashland arrived with over 200 armed men and boys, and they were demanding that William Neal and Ellis Craft be handed over. They're like, give us these men. We want them. We want to kill them. We're done with this. It's taken way too long. And Major Allen refused, and the Granite State left. The mob immediately got back on the train following the river and the steamboat and shortly after the boat had taken off and the train had taken off these people started shooting at the steamer but the militia they didn't return fire it was just the mob was shooting at this so everybody on the train was just shooting at this boat and when the steamer reached ashland they were met with a huge crowd on the shoreline and while the militia didn't return fire they were still barricading everybody with items from the ship but a group of about 20-ish people decided to take a ferry boat from Ashland and their goal was to intercept the steamer. So even if Major Allen's like, okay, we're kind of in the clear now, like they're in Ashland, we're still good, we're in the water, they get on this ferry boat and the ferry boat is following them along. Ferry boat gets closer and closer and closer and starts shooting again. This time, the militia, the guards, they're finally like, all right, we're, we're going to start shooting at them. This is ridiculous. A lot of the guys that were on the ferry actually jumped into the water to avoid being shot. But apparently, there was guns going off everywhere. So I'm not sure if I've mentioned this yet or not. But did you know that two wrongs don't make a right? These people are determined to put these guys to death. Like, this is just... When I was researching this, I, I was like, twists and turns and twists and turns constantly. So, at the end of this, four people died. There was a relative of the Gibbons children that had been involved in this, and they'd been shot three different times. And then there was a woman who had been waiting for the train, and she got shot in this incident, but it was only in the thigh, and she did survive. So, in the beginning of February 1883, so this is when their trial is supposed to take place... Ellis Craft goes on trial first before the Carter County Judge Rice. And while the trial's going on, the militia decided that they needed to camp out in town to make sure that everything was safe because there were obviously a lot of people that were interested in killing him. And so the guys literally camped out in tents outside. And one guard ended up dying because it was so cold out at this time. And there were multiple people that were hospitalized because of the intense exposure to the cold. On February 23rd, 1883, the jury deliberated for about 10 minutes before they returned, saying that one of the jurors was too ill to carry on. And so this was actually postponed until the next morning to actually find out what the verdict was for Ellis Craft. The next day, about 21 minutes into the deliberation, the jury returned with a guilty verdict. After this verdict was announced, Ellis Craft was asked if there was anything that he wanted to say. And Ellis said, quote, I can say one thing. I am not guilty of that charge. I did not have time to put all my witnesses here that I ought to have had. And I consider that I have not had a fair trial, for I know I am not guilty of that. I never as much as laid my hand on them. I never did. You might as well take a little innocent child and hang them as to hang me. The closest I was to Miss Gibbon's house that night was when I lay in bed at home asleep. 
I did not see the house or George Ellis or Bill Neal or any of the children that night. The last time I saw any of Miss Gibbons' children was on the Wednesday before that. I saw little Fanny and spoke to her. This was the last time. I was aroused by the alarm of fire. I could, knowing the children were burned up, stand on the scaffold and hold my hand up and swear in the sight of heaven that I'd not see those children, William Neal or George Ellis, that night. I am as innocent as the angels of that thing. I never thought of such a thing. I was better raised and had more respect for the people about me. I respected Miss Gibbons and her children. I am glad I can stand here and say that I'm innocent. It is the truth. It is a put-up job. Gentlemen, the day is coming when I will be found innocent. End quote. Melina, what are your thoughts about that statement? It seems to me that it's a little bit too late for him to be saying that he's innocent when he has now been proven guilty twice and is now set to hang. I agree. I think he's just trying to say at this point his last words because he knows this is the last time he's going to ever be able to say that he's innocent. Whether or not he is, I don't think he is, but that's, I mean, that's up to you what you think. What is your thoughts about the statement? Because this is the one that stuck out to me the most. Quote, you might as well take a little innocent child and hang them as to hang me. End quote. What are your thoughts on that statement? I don't think that he meant that you should harm a child, but I think he was just trying to prove that he's innocent and what already happened was three children were killed and so you shouldn't hang someone else who is just as innocent as they were. I I could see that. I think that I personally don't believe that he was innocent. So for him to say this is so inaccurate if he is truly guilty because he's definitely not as innocent as a small child. But also keep in mind, at this point in time, he wants to make everyone think that he's innocent. So he's going to go with whatever he can, whether he's innocent or guilty. He's going to, of course, play it to the fact that he is completely innocent. Yeah, I just don't think that you should bring children into it. Regardless of the statement that Ellis Craft gave, the judge still set his date for hanging for May 4th, 1883. However, as you know, our story has not gone as planned throughout the any of this episode. So the governor at the time, Governor Blackburn, for whatever reason, did not feel comfortable with the execution happening while he was governor. He didn't want it to happen during his term. So he decided to delay it until he was out of office. And so the execution was delayed from May 4th of 1883 until October of 1883. And it was set for October 12th. That's just giving him more time to live. And that's just making the town even angrier because they've already tried to murder them so i feel like that's not the brightest thing i think for whatever reason governor blackburn just didn't want to sign off on the death because he felt like it was somehow his fault and he might have had some sort of guilty conscience with that but i I agree the town's already so pissed off and repeatedly attempting to murder them it just seems like a lot of effort to keep them alive and remember in October, it's going to be almost a full two years since the crime itself was committed. And it's just because this thing has been pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. On October 11th, 1883, the day before Ellis Craft was set to hang, he was brought to Grayson for the hanging. And the population of this village was only around a thousand people. But for that week specifically, over 3,000 people came to watch him die. Can you blame them? I mean, they all thought that he murdered three innocent children. I'm sure a lot of people wanted to watch justice finally be carried out. 
So I'm not that surprised that that many people came. I just think that that's such a high amount of people to be there watching you die. The night before, Ellis Craft was kept in a prison cell with windows that had bars all over them so that nobody could get in there to get him and he couldn't escape. But his brothers and his brother-in-laws gathered around and were telling him stories and singing to him throughout the entire night so that he wasn't alone on his last night alive. On October 12th, 1883, Ellis Craft was officially put to death. But at this point in time, William Neal is still alive and still sitting in prison. On April 30th, 1884, there was another trial for William Neal, and he was once again found guilty and sentenced to die. So 1884, we are about three years since the crime had occurred. And while he was waiting for his execution, he was being housed in Kentucky, and he was filing numerous appeals, like appeal after appeal after appeal. He really did not want this guilty sentencing, and this continuously caused the execution to be delayed. So, William Neal was not officially put to death until March 28, 1885, a good three and a half years after the children were murdered. And I know that that doesn't seem like that long for us because right now we have people that have been sitting on death row for 15 plus years. But at this time, that was very, very abnormal. There is actually a song that was written about the Ashland tragedy. And this song, I believe, was released in 1918. We will post a link to it in our description so you guys can go and check it out. I don't believe it was ever recorded. It's just the lyrics specifically of kind of what happened during this crime. And just hearing it in a song, I think, would just make me ball. And reading it makes me feel really sad. So if you guys want to go look in our description, you'll see the link for it. It is the one that is called traditionalmusic.co.uk, folk song lyrics. So if you guys click on that, it'll take you to them. You can also just type into Google Ashland Tragedy Song. So, Melina, that's really the whole story. What are your thoughts on the whirlwind of this two-parter series? That thing was crazy. It started off with three children dying, obviously, and then went all the way to a whole bunch of people dying just because these trials kept getting pushed back farther and farther and farther. And the amount of stories that these people had to tell and, you know, oh, I'm innocent. Oh, these people are guilty. It was just crazy. And I think I got whiplash. It was definitely a crazy story. There were a lot of things that were occurring. It was a constant twist and turn. As you said, it was an older story, obviously. I mean, it was from the 1800s, so things have definitely changed since then. Melina, do you think that William Neal, Ellis Craft, and George Ellis were all guilty, or do you think some of them were innocent, or that all of them were somehow innocent, and somebody else was involved, and George decided to take the fall for somebody else? I feel like they were probably all guilty just because of the stories changing so much. It just, that would be something that someone with a guilty conscience would do and someone who's trying to dig themselves out of a hole. I feel like they would just change the story to kind of tell you what you want to hear. And so I feel like because of that, they were probably guilty. Just because if you're innocent, I feel like you have one story that you would just stick to because that's the truth and that's what happened. Whereas if you're guilty... You're going to try to make all these different cover-up stories, and I feel like that's when it's going to get hard because you're going to start mixing up all these little details and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think that they were all definitely guilty of the crime. And as long as it took, I am glad that they were able to finally get justice for the three children that had their lives taken that night. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.